to look at your word. I pray you would remove from us the twofold blindness into which we were born, sin and ignorance. We are finite and small, and we do not understand. And more than that, Lord, we are selfish and wicked, and we do not want the truth. But I pray that you, through your spirit and the power of your word, would overcome that, Lord. You would grant us humility, dependence on you, Lord, so that we could hear from your word your truth and that we would respond in obedience and submission. In your son's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. And as you're seated, please open up your Bible to Job chapter 28. Um, I really can't express how happy I am to be with you all this morning and to open up God's word. Uh, I have been waiting for this day for a long time, and I thought that Job 28 would be a great place to go, as it is a very unique um, exaltation of the value of God's revelation to us, of God's word. So I will begin then in Job 28, verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver, and a place for gold that they refine, Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limits, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows. And the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden on it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle. And the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out, and he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding." Uh, it's my personal opinion that there's really only one argument against the existence of God. There's really only one reason 
why people don't believe in God, and that's the problem of evil. And if you ever listen to uh, an atheist explain their deconversion or why they're not an atheist, they might talk about, you know, the fossil record and apparent contradictions and stars that are too far away. Uh, but those things don't really matter. They don't really care about those things. And you can tell by how they talk because they'll be talking about those things and all of a sudden they'll switch and their tone will change, their emotion will come out, see it in their eyes as they begin to talk about some terrible thing that happened to them, to their loved one, to some news story they heard about some child uh, being abused in some faraway country. And then they say, and I cannot worship a God that allows those things to happen. That's the great question of life. That's the great problem that we all face. And when someone, an unbeliever, confronts us with this problem, it's not to be ignored. It's not to be dismissed with some glib one-liner about the illegitimacy of the question. No, that, that is the question. And when someone asks that, you should say, that's exactly right. We need to give that question the utmost importance, and the reason that we should give it the utmost importance is because God gives that question the utmost importance. He understands that the supposition of his character as being all-loving and all-knowing and all-powerful cannot be reconciled in our finite minds with all the misery and suffering with the world. He gets that problem that needs a supernatural answer. And he accords it such magnitude that in the very first book of the Bible written, which I believe Job is, God addresses this question head on with really the ultimate discussion of this question, the ultimate discussion of the problem of evil. And in this uh, great pursuit of the answer to the problem of evil in Job, the unique role of Job 28 is that it demonstrates for us that one of the chief outcomes of asking the question of the problem of evil, of trying to resolve that conflict, is that we come to the conclusion that we don't know anything. That we are unable to reconcile this, this most basic and most important question. And though the question of the problem of evil is usually asked in great ignorance and pride, uh, supposing that a person could call God into judgment, Really, this question ought to be greatly humbling, if not humiliating. That there is this contradiction, that we cannot understand it with our minds. We are too small, we are too weak to reconcile even this most basic thing of who is God and why is our life the way it is. That's the conclusion of Job 28. We are ignorant, we do not have this wisdom and there's only one hope for us to ever possibly understand anything. And so what I want to do right now is give an overview of Job chapter 1 to 27, as that is the basis, it's the foundation for Job's comments and conclusions in chapter 28, okay? So if you could go ahead and turn your eyes to that very first verse in Job, one that you're probably familiar with. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then the, the verses will go on to say that Job, he's not only the most righteous man in the world, he's also the most blessed man. He's basically uh, the best person in the world. He is who everybody would want to be. He does everything right, and he gets everything that a person could want. He is totally happy, he's got a wonderful family, he is devoted to God, and he is immensely wealthy. 
And his status as the greatest person in the world, basically, is confirmed in uh, chapter in verses 6 to 12 that when Satan comes before God, their conversation veers to Job. God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's indeed the, the greatest man in the world. And when God says that, Satan comes back to God with a proposition. And Satan's proposition is this, yeah, sure, Job is a good guy, he's a righteous guy, but you have to know, God, that he only worships you, he's only righteous, because you're his genie. You give him whatever he wants. Yeah, he's entered into this wonderful contract with you, where he's nice to people, and he prays for people, and he makes some sacrifices, and then you give him whatever he wants. Who wouldn't enter into that agreement? That doesn't say anything about Job's integrity. It's skin deep. If you would take that away from him, if you took away those blessings from him, you'd see very soon that he only loves you for the stuff you give him. And so God, in response, in order to vindicate Job's integrity and ultimately humiliate Satan, he says, fine then, let's test Job. Let's take those things away from him and let's see how he responds. And indeed, you can look down at verse 21, the famous line, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Indeed, Satan came and took away everything from Job, killed all of his children, took away all of his possessions, and still, Job's integrity remains. He still worships the Lord. Satan has been proved wrong. Satan, though, he says, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, Let me try again. This time, let me take away his health. And God says, go ahead. And he comes and he indeed attacks Job's physical well-being. While Job's integrity endures, his wife's crumbles. His wife says to him, curse God and die. Now, the action of the book of Job really kicks off right after that. That's just the prologue. The action kicks off, the content really begins when Job's three friends arrive. So go ahead and look at Job chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort. So Job's three friends, they come to Job to do what? To sympathize with him, and to comfort him. That's why they come, but that's not why they stay. Um, It's unfortunate that the the common thought about Job's three friends is that the reason that they're in the book of Job uh, is to teach us to not be idiots like them when someone else goes through something hard. The supposition is that these are basically the most obtuse, emotionally retarded jerks in the whole world, and that we're going to look at them for 27 chapters So that when someone else loses everything, don't go around reminding them how they probably did something bad. Instead, you know, be nice to them, you know, uh, comfort them, say it's all right. No, that's not why uh, Job's three friends are in the books. And they're certainly not obtuse. They're certainly not uh, unintelligent. They are incredibly intelligent. The reason that Job's three friends stay around and the reason that their words are worth being recorded is because Job's suffering has brought an existential crisis to them that is indeed demonstrative of a a crisis that all of us face. 
Job's three friends have a, a pretty concrete idea of how the world works. Indeed, they basically view the world like Satan says Job does. They believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And yet Job, the very best man, has had the very worst thing happen to them. And so his life, his experience, threatens everything that they know and believe about the world. With the practical outcome being that his three friends cannot have any confidence that the same thing will not happen to them. Because for all intents and purposes, as far as they could see, Job was much better than them. And so if God is going to come around and unleash his fury, basically have hell on earth come at Job, how do Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar know that God's not going to do the same thing to them? Uh, By means of illustration, imagine that uh, as a young adult, you came across this financial guru who had uh, his famous ABCs of investing. And by following his ABCs of investing, he himself had become a billionaire. And you, when you were young, had read about this, and you thought, oh, there's some wisdom in those. And you decided to start following his ABCs of investing. And sure enough, you made a lot of money in your own life. And years go by, and you always hold religiously to the ABCs of investing. And then imagine one year, you know, decades later, you see on CNBC that your guy, your guru, has lost everything. Not just one bad investment, but all of his investments crashing down at once. He goes in a day into bankruptcy. That's going to bother you, right? You've been following him your whole life. You've been following his investing tips. So what you're going to now be desperate to do, is you're going to watch on CNBC as he's interviewed, and you're going to be waiting for him to say, you know what, I deviated from my principles. And if he would just say that, if he'd say, I, I, I didn't keep it, I got too proud, and I thought I'd try something else, then you could say, okay, I'm good. The principles are still sound. As long as I keep to the ABCs of investing, I'll be okay. But if he's on CNBC and he says, no, I, I haven't a clue. I did, I did everything right. And I've gone over it again and again, and I, I've kept my principles. I've done the same thing I've always done. I, I cannot tell you what happened. I lost everything. That's not the answer you want to hear. Because what's the assurance you have that you're not going to lose all of your assets in a day just like he did? That's the experience of Job's three friends. His experience, him losing everything, calls into question their view of the world. If Job can be the best person and yet lose everything, then they apparently don't understand how the world works. And most importantly, they are completely vulnerable. At any time, the same thing could happen to them. So that then is the content of uh, chapter 3 to 27. It is three rounds of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar each bringing their accusation towards Job with the idea that they would bring some new explanation, some new charge, so that Job would finally either admit, okay, you're right, yes, I did have that secret sin, I did steal all that money, or he would say, you know, you're right, I never thought about it that way, but that is sin. And Job would say, I get it now, I deserve this. And then they'd all go, okay, good, Uh, and I'm sorry, buddy. That's what they want. And as it keeps going on, and each time they say, well, Job, you know, it's probably this. And he says, no, it's not. They get more and more frustrated. 
Because more and more, their system of thought, their philosophy and theology is crumbling bit by bit as Job continues to reject their explanations and accusations. And like I said, it's three times each time they'll bring an accusation and Job will reject it. And in Job's rejection, he'll then go on and on to explain how he too is ignorant. Like, he's not as ignorant as them. He, he knows that he is truly righteous and God has done this, but he still doesn't understand God. He still doesn't understand how he could do everything right his whole life and yet lose everything. So they go once, they go twice, they go three times, and eventually, so far, he's the last one. He doesn't even say anything the last time. He's run out of accusations. Then we come to chapter 27, and then finally, we come to chapter 28. And again, this is Job's conclusion about these dialogues they've had. It's Job's conclusion about their efforts to understand how God works to acquire wisdom. And here, these, this first section, verses 1 to 11, I'll call this the power of man. Job opens up this section by waxing eloquent about the power, ingenuity, and intelligence of man, demonstrated in man's ability to find precious jewels under the earth. He says that, that in man's search for wealth, for riches, man has demonstrated that he is the image of God. As Christians, of course, we affirm that mankind has fallen and finite, but we also uphold vehemently the dignity and worth of mankind as the image bearer of God. And that's what Job says. We have great power. Under the earth, there are all these rocks and precious jewels that are covered in darkness and more rocks. And yet man has put an end to that darkness in verse 3. He has searched out the farthest limits. He has figured out ways to blast open the rocks and create these caverns beneath the ground and under there to hang some kind of uh, trolley car that can hang from the ceilings as they go and they search out for the precious gold and the precious jewels. Underneath where the bread comes out, man has figured out a way to find wealth. And in this way, man has demonstrated himself to be transcendent over all other animals. The bird of prey and the falcons for all of its power, it is not able to overturn mountains to find jewels under the earth. For all of the strength and ferocity of the lion, it cannot do what man does. No, and in a man's search for wealth and man's creation of these minds, he has brought the hidden things to light. And he has demonstrated man's great capacity and competence to find the things that he needs. And yet, Job's point is that man's competency to find wealth, to find jewels, and his ingenuity in that pursuit is contrasted with his complete incompetence and inability to find that which is most valuable, namely wisdom. He says that in verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? If someone comes along and says, hey, how do I get wealthy? We can give you books and books and say, this is how you do it. This is how you blast into the earth. This is how you can carve out the precious jewels. But if someone says, how can I understand the world? Where can I find wisdom? No one has a clue. 
And so that's the, the second section then, verses 12 to 22. I'm going to call that the mystery of wisdom. The mystery of wisdom is this, that wisdom is necessary. It is foundational. It's the most valuable thing, and yet it evades our pursuits. And in verse 13, man does not know its worth. And in our inability to, uh, to find wisdom, we've deluded ourselves by saying it's not really that important. As long as we have enough jewels, that'll make up for our lack of understanding. But again, it's just a delusion. Of course that could never make up for a lack of wisdom. You could never accumulate enough gold, enough silver to buy understanding, to buy knowledge. No. It's the most valuable thing in the world, and yet it completely evades us. And here's a good place to pause and ask the question, what is wisdom? Wisdom, of course, is a word that's used all across Scripture, and it yet can sometimes be somewhat difficult to define. And I think that actually the book of Job is one of the very best places to go to find out what wisdom is. Namely, because wisdom is the thing that Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar kept seeking after and yet could not find. You can take all of their dialogues and make an outline of the knowledge, the information they lack, and you can say, that's wisdom. That's what they lack. And so specifically... What is wisdom? It is a correct understanding of the world that results in correct action. Wisdom is a correct understanding of the world that results in correct action. Again, the most practical and direct thing that Job's friends are trying to figure out is what do I need to do to not be utterly devastated like Job? It's a simple question. How should I live my life? What error do I avoid? What sin do I uh, make sure I don't commit? so that I don't lose everything like Job. It's a simple question, and it's a practical question. And that is indeed wisdom. The answer to that would be wisdom. But then on the the opposite side of the spectrum, you can see that you could only ever answer the question of what to do, how to live your life, if you then can first answer the cosmic question. If you can provide some kind of philosophy and theology that would make sense of all of the world. So wisdom is that whole thing. Yes, it is ultimately a pragmatic ethical question, but to ever answer that, you have to first answer cosmic, philosophical, theological questions about who God is, what's our place in the world, what's our relationship to him, why is the world the way it is. That's what wisdom is. And I think another helpful way to define what wisdom is is to contrast it with knowledge. And this definition here, this, I'm not claiming that every time the word wisdom is used in the Bible, it means this, and every time the word knowledge is used, it means this. No, uh, the biblical authors, like us, they use words in slightly different ways in slightly different contexts. So I'm not trying to impose a rigid definition on every use of the word, but just as a general paradigm... A good way to think about wisdom and knowledge is that knowledge is data. Knowledge is information. And wisdom, then, is the the paradigm, the understanding that encompasses and makes sense of all the individual points of data. Now, you could think about it if someone gave you a riddle to solve. And when they give you the riddle, they give you some information. 
and then maybe you, you struggle with it, and they give you some hints, and they give you some more hints. Those hints, uh, that riddle, what that is, is knowledge. But you can never accumulate enough knowledge to ultimately make the jump from the individual points of data to an understanding that encompasses all of the data. And what that is, is wisdom. And that is what Job and his friends lack. They know many things about life. They have great knowledge. Read the whole book. They talk about all kinds of stuff. History, nature, philosophy, they've got it. But what they lack is an understanding that makes sense of it all. And indeed, the legacy of Job and his friends, the pursuit, the vain pursuit of wisdom, has been embodied in the centuries since. And every philosopher every founder of a new religion who comes out proposing that this is how the world works. This is the basic understanding of life, of God, and therefore what you need to do is this, and you will find happiness, you will avoid suffering. And in this pursuit of wisdom, of knowledge throughout the centuries, man's come up with everything. One of the earliest philosophers, he said, this is the basic understanding of life, this is wisdom. Everything is always changing. But then the next guy, he came around just a generation later, and he said, no, 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 he was wrong. Actually, the basic understanding, wisdom of life, is that nothing ever changes. Everything always stays the same. Some philosophers have said that there are an infinite number of gods. Others, of course, claim there is one God. Some claim that God is everything. Some people claim that God doesn't exist at all. Some people believe that man truly can understand and know everything just on their own. Others say that man can never know anything at all, that we're trapped in ignorance. Uh, Cicero summarized this well when he said, there's nothing so stupid that some philosopher hasn't said it. (laughs) And that's the history. That's the history of mankind. We are faced with the great questions of life, and all we find is, is darkness, is blindness. And indeed, people, you know, they'll have somewhat confidence in their wisdom and their philosophy, but you know what they all lack? They all lack confirmation. See, the thing is, is as you try and figure out some kind of philosophy, wisdom, to make sense of the whole world, you can never really know for certain that you've got it all. Why? Because you're so small. You know so many few things. As I've heard before, it's impossible to truly be an atheist because you could have all of your logical proofs, but God could be hiding behind a mountain in Mars. You don't know enough. You don't know enough to make these big conclusions of life. You can feel pretty good about your philosophy, your worldview, but what you lack is certainty that you actually know what you're doing, that you're flying rather than just falling with style. We don't know. And that's Job's conclusion. Man does not know the place of wisdom. For all of our ingenuity, power, and intelligence, we cannot make sense of life. So then, Job, he moves in verse 20 to 28. He moves to the answer. See, Job, while he does not know the place of wisdom, he knows the one person who does know where wisdom is. That's what he says in verse 20. I'm calling this section... Verses 23 uh, to 28, the keeper of wisdom. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. 
for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. How does God know the truth? How does God have wisdom? Because he looks at everything. He is not finite like us. He has every single point of data, every single point of information, and he looks at it all and he understands it all perfectly. He knows wisdom with absolute certainty. And not only does he see everything and understand it in that way, but indeed, he's the one who made everything. He was the one who had the wisdom to give wind its proper weight. He was the one who knew the exact amount of water to put in the oceans. He was the one who figured out how rain would work, how the ecosystem would function. He was the one who, decide, who uh, designed lightning and thunder. He is the one who saw it, he declared it, he established it, and searched it out. God knows wisdom. And he is the only source of it. For us to ever know, it must be because he will tell us. And we come then to verse 28. And remember, as I said before, uh, I believe that Job is the first book of the Bible that was written. Of course, some of the events of Genesis happened before Job. But I believe that this was the first book of the Bible given to humanity. And in this book, there's been, of course, Job talking to his friends and his friends talking to him. There's even been God and Satan talking to each other. What we have, though, here in, verse 28, in chapter 28, verse 28, is God's first direct address to humanity in the whole book. Amid all the ignorance, God finally speaks. And what does he say? He says, behold, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. You're familiar, no doubt, uh, with a version of this phrase from Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and destruction. Likewise, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Of course, as you compare those, the second verse is different each time, and then the first uh, verse is slightly different. The difference is in Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're here in Job, it just says the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Of course, Proverbs, uh, it was written after Job. And so what I believe Solomon is doing in those verses is he is giving his inspired interpretation of what Job means. Indeed, in some senses, the whole book of Proverbs is an exercise of Job, this foundational insight from Job. That the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And so what does that mean? Well, first we have, to, we have to ask the question is, what does it mean by the fear of the Lord? Well, that's been demonstrated in, throughout, the book of the, throughout the book of Job. The fear of the Lord is man's proper posture before an infinite, sovereign God who can do absolutely whatever he wants. It is the posture of a finite, small creature who is completely vulnerable before a God who does what he wants when he wants. The fear of the Lord is the emotion that comes when you realize that everything that you love and care about is a gift given to you from God and he is under no obligation to continue giving it to you. The fear of the Lord is the, the emotion that comes when you realize that God this day could take away your ability to walk. He could take away your child. He could take away your wealth. He could, and he indeed one day will, kill you. 
and you can do nothing to stop him. There's no contract that you have with him where he has to do good things to you because you did good things to him. He decides everything by the counsel of his own will, and we are entirely vulnerable before him. You cannot stop his hand. And to understand that, to recognize that and accept it, that is the fear of the Lord. It's complete humility. And it is only ever by coming to that posture, to that position, that we ever could know anything. You have to first realize that you do not and will not ever know anything on your own for you to finally come before God and say, you must tell me the truth. I don't know, and I never can. You tell me how to live my life. You tell me how this, wor- how this world works. I have no more presuppositions. I have no more assumptions. I have no more soapboxes. I know nothing. God, you must speak to me. And it's only when you get to that place that you can ever understand. Because God is the only one who has wisdom. And again, you have no contract with him. He has no obligation even to give you wisdom. All you can do is humbly go before him and say, please teach me, Lord. Please help me understand. And of course, the question that comes from that is, do you have the fear of the Lord? Do you stand in awe before him, before his power? Or are you like uh, Job's friends? Are you like Job's wife? Are you like uh, Satan's character of Job? Do you come to church and do good things because you think God's going to give you good stuff in return? And that, yeah, you'll be a good person and you'll call yourself a Christian as long as things go your way. Is that you? Or do you truly fear the Lord? Throughout the book of Job, that's the very thing. We see that Job is really the only one who actually has this characteristic. And yeah, though Job struggles throughout the book, Though he does indeed sin in the things he eventually will say, this key characteristic, his fear of the Lord, is never compromised. And though at this point in the book, he is just as ignorant as Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who do not have the fear of the Lord, Job of the four is the only one who eventually will receive wisdom. Right after Job finishes his speech, Elihu is going to come along. And he does not have perfect wisdom, but he has some wisdom. And Job learns from him. And then ultimately, God comes down, and he addresses Job and his friends. And in that, Job does indeed finally receive true wisdom. That wisdom is not an understanding. It's not an explanation of everything that's happened to him. What it is is a proclamation of God's character. And as we said before, that is the foundation of wisdom, to understand who God is and how he operates. That's really all we need to have wisdom. If we know who he is, that he is loving, that he is kind, that he is perfectly wise, then that means that we can trust him even when we don't understand all of the finer points. So do you fear the Lord? Job did. And that is what allowed him to eventually come to understand As I said before, I love this chapter because uh, it is a, a beautiful demonstration of how much we need God's Word. If you have come to the realization that you do not know on your own and that God must speak to you and give you His wisdom, 
If you've come to that position, then when you come to Scripture, you will finally realize, yes, this is what I've been longing for. God did not have to speak to me, but he has in this book. And if you already fear the Lord, if you have already come to the conclusion that you don't know anything, then when you come and listen to God in Scripture, you will come in submission. And whatever he says, you will accept. You're not going to have problems when it says that uh, God sends people to hell or that uh, two men can't love each other in a romantic relationship. Why? Because you've already said at the door, I don't know anything. So if you read something and it doesn't make sense to you, you say, well, yeah, I'm an idiot. I don't know anything. I already established that, and I already said that whatever God says is the truth, and he must speak to me. So whatever he says, I submit to, I accept, I embrace, I love, and if I don't even understand it, then I'm going to seek to understand it because I know that it is the truth. I know that it is true wisdom. He's spoken to us in his word, and of course he's also spoken to us ultimately in his son, who is the incarnation of God's wisdom. And by everything he did and everything he said, he showed us who God was. And with that in mind, turn over please to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for us to close. As I said before this, the pursuit of the question of the problem of evil, it leads to humility. Indeed, for Job's friends, it led to their humiliation. Though they had probably thought themselves very wise and successful people, They were demonstrated to know nothing. God brought down the wisdom of the wise, and ultimately the one he vindicates is Job, the one who admitted from the start that he did not know and he needed God to speak to him. Paul very beautifully discusses this same theme in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31. So I'll begin there in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then verse 19, this is actually a quotation from the book of Job. Technically, it's a quotation of Isaiah, which is a quotation of Job. Nevertheless, it's a quotation of Job. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? That's Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far. They are the wise, they are the scribes. But has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Let us pray.
Lord, this fear of the Lord is what we desperately need. And yet we are once more humbled because we cannot even give ourselves the fear of the Lord. We are proud. We want to manipulate you. We want to coerce you. We want to be our own gods. And we are so thankful, though, that you have reached into our hearts. You have given us your spirit. You have taken away our heart of stone. And you have given us, most basically, a fear of you, a love for you. And I pray that throughout this week we would increase in that more and more, Lord. If there's any areas of our life where we still hold on to our semblance of wisdom, I pray you would push that away that we would come under complete submission to your word that would be demonstrated in a life of obedience. Please bless us now. In your son's name we pray, amen. Now may the word of Christ, which is the wisdom of God, dwell in you richly, that you may teach and admonish each other in the world with all wisdom, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 